This is Words First, Talking Text in Opera. I'm Katora Stickan. Richard Wesley has seen a lot in his life. He was a playwriting student at Howard University in the mid-60s, an award-winning playwright in New York in the early 1970s, and a screenplay writer for Sidney Poitier in the late 70s. Now, as an associate professor at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, he's still writing plays, but has found his way into opera, writing a number of libretti for Trilogy, an opera company in Newark, New Jersey. One, the Central Park Five, composed by Anthony Davis, went to Long Beach Opera last year and took this year's Pulitzer for music. He's also veered into memoir writing with his new autobiography, It's Always Loud in the Balcony, A Life in Black Theater from Harlem to Hollywood and Back. When I started reading this terrific book, I knew I wanted to talk to him about everything he's seen and what it's like to pivot into opera after an already full career. Last week, I had the opportunity to interview Richard, and we had an amazing conversation. We talked about life now, life then, and the joys of discovering new means of expression late in one's career. Take a listen. So I, I want to, um, in your in your memoir, you, you refer to yourself several times as a dramatist and indicate that this means that you could work in whatever medium sort of best serves your current ideas. So I assumed that you meant this to be theater, film, or television, but because... This is a podcast about librettists. I actually wanted to start our conversation at the very end of your book. So on the last page, you mentioned that you've begun writing librettos for opera, which is, to quote you, forcing me to think in new dimensions of creativity. So did you ever think that you would include writing libretti as part of being a dramatist? And how do you find the medium of opera to be serving your current ideas? Um, I did not think that this was going to be a new field for me. I had no idea. Uh, uh, 10 years ago, if you had mentioned it to me, I would go like, oh, hey, I'm so happy you think that of me. <laughs> you know, but it, it, it would not have been something that I was, that, that I would have considered. Sure. Um, and New Dimensions, yes, I'm excited about it. Um, I find myself thinking in that arena more, more so, you know, especially with new story ideas that I have. Um, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's a new territory. Um, working with composers, mm -hmm. every composer has told me, don't worry about the music. Don't think about the music at all. Just write, um, you know, write as though you were writing a play and let us worry about how we're going to musicalize. Is that easier said but than done? <laughs> much easier said than done. Yeah. Much easier said than done because as a writer, you're constantly thinking about, am I constructing dialogue that is impossible to imagine as music? Mm -hmm. uh, on stage, the dialogue conveys almost all of the information that an audience is going to need. Um, so uh, the dialogue, you can expand your dialogue a little bit, but there you don't, you don't want to overburden the actor with too many lines to memorize. With, right. uh, and you don't want to overexplain something. Uh -huh. So I bring that same kind of, of um, feeling and um, eagerness to accommodate, you know, the composer that I that I do, uh, you know, uh, to the actor. So I'm looking for lines, uh, you know, or, or, or words rather, in my dialogue that lend themselves um, to uh, the composer's imagination in terms of how he how he or she might want to musicalize. Um, you know, uh, that line of uh, uh, dialogue. It's sort of like um, in 
uh, Central Park Five, which I know we're going to discuss. A yes, we later will. On. Yes. <laughs> the Central Park Five. I I, I um, had a line. Um, we are the freaks, and we own the night. Okay. Um, and it was taken from something when I originally started writing that. It's like, you know, people see us as freaks. Um, uh, and, and maybe we are, you know, and, and I started to explain that whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, I just ex- expand the line. I said, well, no, wait a minute. What if I kept it short, shorter, made it shorter, a choppier and, 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 uh, more, um, uh, more percussive. Uh-huh. Does that, that, you know, does that then help? Uh, you know, Anthony, in terms of how he wants to approach it in turn, you know, you know, musically. And sure enough, when Anthony uh, started to, to, to create the, uh, the uh, composition, he took the same line and shortened it even more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, because he found places where um, he could, um, you know, heighten um, the emotion behind the line. Right. He could get into the subtext that I was going into, you know, that I was going for. And that's how um, uh, we started working. Well, do you feel, you've used a phrase uh, in your book uh, uh, talking about uh, how you admire the economy of lines. So it, yes. it, do you feel like that, uh, that idea has helped you uh, when you're working with essentially a storytelling partner that you have in, in a composer? Yes, for me anyway, writing that way has always helped. The economy of lines, giving actors room to breathe in between the lines, in between um, the exchanges of dialogue, giving them a place to go creatively, mm-hmm. because every actor is going to create the character that they're playing. Yes. Um, yes, the the, the 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 interpretation of that character, I should say. Every actor is going to have their own interpretation. Part of my process is giving them room to interpret. I don't want to overwrite the part so there's no place for them to go. Uh-huh. And at the same time, I, I you know, I, I do worry about underwriting it, but mm, I'm not too afraid to err on that side because um, again, uh, even some, you know, if, if there's not enough there, I find out about it in rehearsal. The act, either the actor or the director will tell me, um, or if neither one of them says anything, I'm sitting out there during, um, during the rehearsal and I'll hear something. Go, oh my God, what are I? You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. Wait, 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 you know, and I can come in and, you know, make an adjustment. And so I'm writing lines. Um, that come right up to the uh, come right up to a certain point, and I leave things for the actors to find. And it feels like I the composer them. can be can can take up some of that as well. Yes. Yeah. And, and same thing, you know. So the same thing applies to working with a composer. Thank you. Yeah. yeah that's great. That's it's um, a wonderful way to yeah. work. Um, well. It, it certainly has worked. It's it's worked for me for um, a couple of years now. Yeah. 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 So I, you know, and I want to, can can you just give me a little history here? So uh, after so many years of writing screenplays and plays, how was it that yes. you actually got into writing opera? I was at an, an event at the uh, uh, Newark, New Jersey uh, Public Library, the main branch. Um, the one, by the way, um, uh, my homeboy Philip Roth is made famous in his novels like Goodbye Columbus. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I was at an event there, and um, I met Kevin Maynard, who uh-huh. is the uh, artistic director of uh, Trilogy, an opera company, right? Uh, which is uh, based in Newark. Okay. And Kevin. Uh, you know, was the one who spoke to me. He said, I would like you to write a libretto. (laughs) (laughs) In that Uh, lovely deep voice he has. (laughs) In that lovely deep voice of his, you know. uh, The material that he wanted, 
he wanted to do an opera about uh, Jean-Paul Duvalier, who uh -huh. uh, was a brutal dictator in uh, Haiti uh, from the late 1950s until his death, I think sometime during the 80s. Um, uh, he was known as Papa Doc. Right. And, and um, uh, built uh, a lot of his uh, power on the mystery of, uh, of, of voodoo. Um, and um, so I was given some material. Um, I thought it was basically a series of essays that were written by a, a wonderful young Haitian American writer named Edwidge Danticott. Mm -hmm. And um, her material was just incredible. It's just incredible to read. She's such a wonderful writer. But Kevin wanted me to create a play out of what, what was essential, essentially nonfiction reportage. Yes. Um, this was a journalist's material. And oh my goodness, you know, thanks a lot, Kevin. Thank you very much. <laughs> You know, and um, uh, as it turned out, I did. I found um, a passage uh, in her work that um, was moving and deeply involving, um, and I turned that into the uh, opera. So it was very interesting for the first time to see how what I wrote um, was reinterpreted again by someone else and turned and, and suddenly, um, you know, turned into this, you know, uh, you know, musical presentation. I mean, it was just, right. wow. Okay. You know, um, so as soon as that happened, you know, um, my first reaction was, what else can we do? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> That's you know, okay, <laughs> and um, uh, then we did. Uh, uh, I wrote, wrote a libretto of, about Jomo Kenyatta, who yep. was the uh, first um, uh, elected president of uh, the newly independent nation of Kenya. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and then we followed that. Uh, uh, I think um, after that, I think that was when um, the uh, first version of uh, Central Park Five. Which was just called Five at the time when you first did it. At the time, it was uh -huh. called yeah, it was called Five, and um, um, and I wanna I wanna get back to that, but I just I wanna look at just the other two. Then you had two other operas before we talk in depth about Five, uh, Booker okay. T and W E B. Um, yes. That was one, and then also Scott Garner Grace as Jimmy Baldwin, which was Dwayne Fulton's yes. uh, piece that you wrote. Oh, Dwayne Fulton. Oh, I cannot say enough about that young man. Really? I really, I really, really would love to work with him again. Um, I thought the uh, music that, um, that, that he created for that piece was just, it was so riveting and engaging. Really? And um, what that uh, um, libretto is, it's basically exclusively quotes from James Baldwin, from the writing of James Baldwin. Okay. Wow. And so what I had to do with that was go into his various essays, uh -huh. um, some, uh, some of his television appearances, and um, listen to them and read them and then put them in an order that kind of told a story. Um, and also, and uh, well, that story basically is what would James Baldwin say um, about um, the deaths of uh, Walter Scott, Eric Garner, and Freddie Gray? Right. That's Scott Garner and Gray. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and. and <laughs> Wayne just he just he took that material and he just put some just incredible music um, uh, uh, along with it. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Five, which was then expanded last year and renamed the Central Park Five uh, yes. and was produced by Long Beach Opera. 
uh, and won yes. the Pulitzer <laughs> this year, which is yeah. spectacular. <laughs> so that's huge. Yeah. Um, let's. Uh, can you talk to me just about the the um, the becoming of that piece and working with Anthony Davis on that? Well, um, uh, Anthony worked on it when it was five. Um, right. Anthony was the um, you know the original uh, composer, and I knew going in that I would be working with him. I started out with uh, again with um, mostly material in the in the uh, in the public domain. I knew about the uh, Ken Burns uh, documentary, but I deliberately made a choice not to see it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. There were copyright issues, and I didn't want to get influenced by anything that might be in there. And then yep. suddenly, you know, uh, well, okay. So I didn't, you know, I didn't want, didn't uh, watch that. Instead, I just concentrated on what I could find um, uh, in magazines, uh, 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 sorry, uh, newspaper reports, right, and began creating uh, a a story there. And I decided that I did not want to try to do it in, uh, in any kind of biographical fashion. I didn't want to um, try to recreate the actual facts um, or setting or anything. What I wanted to do was move into people's imaginations, move into people's feelings. Right. So I write off where I wanted to be was in, in some kind of abstraction. Right. That's I, I remember actually listening to an interview with Kevin Maynard about this and him saying that that uh, uh, you had talked about it being uh, uh, real but not or true but not real or true but that that that, that, that it yeah. was arguing with those two ideas of, of... Yeah. Yes. I had a very narrow window to develop the libretto, okay. get it to Anthony, so, and he would have a very narrow window to develop the music. Mm-hmm. So I had the um, public domain material. I had my memories of how I felt when all of this was unfolding in real time. I had um, information uh, and memory um of uh you know of that period in the in in um, the early 1990s um when so much of this unfolded and i decided let's go with these feelings what does all of this mean to america how how are we as a society dealing with this what are the abstractions um that we've created in our own minds right. that's allowed us to cope right. so the play itself becomes an extraction mm-hmm. and it becomes um this kind of of of, of nightmarish uh slash fantasy um slash impressionistic world in which all of uh, you know, all of our assumptions, interpretations, and feelings, and ideas, and uh, anger, and rage, and expectation—all of that can be thrown in there and mixed and mixed around. Right. Um, uh, society itself, uh, the way in which um, Harlem has been uh, created in the public mind or recreated in the public mind and presented in the public mind through media, through literature, through um, anecdotal uh, experiences, both from outside and inside Harlem itself, became embodied in the character of the mask. Right, yes, I read about this. um, A a characterization that was also a very convenient (laughs) instrument for me we were working on a shoestring budget. We couldn't have a huge cast. Right. So I created the mask. Uh, he could be a kind of uh, society's everyman. Uh-huh. Um, and he could take on all kinds of different roles in, in, in uh, you know, in the uh, piece itself. Because the mask also becomes this kind of oppressive system. Mm. 
that um, you know so many uh, people of color are continuously aware of. Mm-hmm. We are how we you know how we function inside this system of of, of American society um, is it's it, 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 it's governed by these rules, by these expectations, and also by the way um, sometimes coldly impersonal the way in which the system interacts with us. Yeah. So the map for me became this convenient character that I could create. Um, the Central Park Five um, or five in the, ori- in, in, in the original form, um, the five boys um, became a collective personality. I did not different, differentiate um, uh, between them. Um, I imagined them um, the way people today remember the Scottsboro Boys, mm. or um, and 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 certainly uh, the way people remember the Central Park Five. They're not remembered individually as Kevin and Antron um, uh, and, and and so on. Um, they are remembered as five young men now. Right. So in the in in the uh, original uh, piece, that's who they were. They were five young men um, uh, who uh, became this collective image um, uh, in the public mind, and the public is the mask, and this and you have these two entities, the five and the mask, seeing each other. Uh huh. You know, as these, as, as you know, as these stereotypes, as these tropes, and they're reacting to each other, um, you know, that way, um, and How- it gave me it gave me a certain kind of freedom, um, you know, writing that way, and I was able to to make some um, social and political statements right. a lot more easily than if I had had to really you know, sort of try to uh, recreate um, a reality the way Ava DuVernay did in When They See Us. Yes. You know, her very powerful piece on, on Netflix. Mm-hmm. But she had, you know, she had the advantage also of being able to spread out over eight or nine episodes. Right. And you have to pack still, a punch right off the bat with one, you, you have one no. go. <laughs> one go. I have only two hours. Yep. And I, and I have to do it on a very limited budget. Uh-huh. And um, once I musicalize, once the, the piece is musicalized, um, that also is going to bring, um, you know, uh, some certain, you know, less lessons that I had to learn, uh, you know, back in the play. Um, you can't write a two-hour play, right? Um, and then have it musicalized and, and, and expect it to just simply become a two-hour opera. No, it becomes a, a seven-and-a-half-hour opera. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Yep. And so I had to create, in effect, with each of those operas that I wrote um, at Trilogy, um, I had to write a one-act play mm-hmm. that could tell a story. And so Central Park uh, uh, Five originally was a one-act play uh-huh. that literally covered 13 years. Right. <laughs> you know, but, um, and, and if it was performed as a play, it would have run for, you know, maybe 45 minutes. Uh-huh. Once it was musicalized, it turned into a two-hour opera, two-hour right. and 15-minute opera. Um and then months after we had done the production, and again, I was, you know, my head was someplace else. I get a telephone call from Anthony. Richard, I need your bio. I need a headshot. <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> why? Why? why, why? Uh, you know, we, we may have a chance out of fuel. And I was oh, okay. You know, I had no idea. <laughs> You know, there's a, there's a, you know, um, the, the uh, chairman of the drama department, uh, the dramatic writing department where I teach at NYU, Terry Curtis Fox. Uh-huh. Terry emailing me, congratulating me. <laughs> I'm calling him for what? 
and um, you know, and and uh, yes, the 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 opera, um, the opera won a Pulitzer. It's fantastic! Congratulations! Yeah. What a what a wonderful yeah. honor after so much work because it it's such a, a long period of time you've been working on this piece. So I, I think that's yeah, great. You know, I, you know, I sort of you know, I mean, it, you know, it's 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 uh, the Pulitzer Prize for music, so it's a little bit more Anthony than it is me. Yeah, but the, your words are what uh, what inspired that music, so I think you you should uh, you should feel yeah. pretty proud of that as well. Yes. So I, I actually want to change subjects. Um, I, I, there's a question I want to ask you. I'm not I'm not quite sure how to word it. I've I've written some stuff down. So, um, but just looking at your entire body of work and then reading your memoir, uh, there's this the issue of what a, a black writer should be writing about comes up quite a bit in your memoir. So I, yes. I think my first part of this question is, do you feel that black art in this country should always address the struggle for justice and freedom, or is it okay to write human drama that doesn't take any sort of racial or political stance or just because a playwright or cast is black in this country, does it automatically take a racial or political stance? I think it's a little bit of uh, um, uh, item two and item three. Uh -huh. um, uh, all black playwrights, um, Actually, I think I'm safe in saying most black playwrights are not writing overtly political drama right now uh -huh. and never have been. But once you start capturing our lives um, in dramatic form, just having, just seeing us on stage, living our lives in America, that is a political statement. Right. It just automatically is the way things are right now. Right. Um, and and so uh, it's almost impossible not to address the social and political dynamics uh, if you're going to be true to the characters that uh, you know uh, who you're creating. But we, um, you know, collectively as writers, um, you know, have been writing plays about family dysfunction. Sure. Writing plays about uh, romance and um, failed romance. <laughs> right. A favorite <laughs> subject of many. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know uh, I wish I could at least be in a failed romance. You know? <laughs> you know? So um, if we, if, if as writers, we are true to ourselves, then we are in fact writing, um, you know, about the uh, human condition. Um, yes. Uh, you know, as much as uh, David Mamet or as much as uh, Marsha Norman, um, uh, you know, or, or, or uh, any other playwright who's not black, mm -hmm. but who is writing, um, you know, honestly and truthfully, um, uh, you know, about uh, life as they've, uh, as they have experienced it. Um, yes we are african-american afro-american black however you want to define us sure. uh, in terms of our appearance but the subject matter that we're writing um is reflective uh of uh the uh human condition because black people are human mm -hmm. jitney is not an overtly black drama uh in terms of you know august wilson's uh, first right. play yes. it's it's not um a drama about the black condition mm -hmm. in America, but there are black people who are living in that story. Um, you know, who are who are reflective of things that 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 have been going on in America. Okay, it's a play that takes place in a community, a working class community, called the Hill District in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. It is essentially at its core a play about a father who has been devastated um, by the fact that his son, in whom he had placed so many dreams and had so much hope for, um, wound up spending um, 15 years in prison for murdering a girl. Hmm. And now he, it, and, and it, it is, so much of that play is about the father's inability to forgive his son. His son is begging for forgiveness and 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 trying somehow to reconnect and every and the father is resisting him. That's at the core of the play. Now that is something as a subject 
that could go on. I mean, I could see everyone from uh, Arthur Miller to, um, you know, Tennessee Williams, uh, you know, uh, right on down to David Ray mm -hmm. writing a play like that. Um, but it's a black, you know, it's written by a black author. And so everyone's sort of like, even with August, it kind of gets ghettoized into this black drama. Right. And, um, you know, people are trying to, you know, they attach other things to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but August would argue, and, and certainly I would, um, and, and, you know, August is writing a play um, that has as much uh, human um, uh, or has, has as much humanity uh, in it as, um, you know, uh, some of the best work of, uh, you know, of people like Miller or, or O'Neill, um, um, you know, both of whom have written father-son plays right. uh, uh, in their own canon. And for that reason, you know, we have to start expanding the horizon of the, um, you know, I think the American uh, play canon, uh, because when you look at the totality of, of um, plays, and I got into a, I think I may have mentioned something about this in, um, in the memoir. Mm -hmm. I got into a big uh, thing at the Negro Ensemble Company uh, very early in my career. Um, when um, oh yeah, I did I did write about it. I I think I did. Um, I was on a panel with uh, some very distinguished uh, uh, black um, scholars and uh, artists and everything. And one of them just she just castigated uh, all these young black playwrights. <laughs> Uh -huh. um, and uh, went on and on and on about how, you know, uh, uh, Mary Baraka was, you know, too much foul language and get whitey, get whitey. Yeah. That was all that, that's all he had to say. And while she was going on about this, I was making a list of plays um, by black playwrights that I had seen that season and the season before. Um, in theaters across New York that had absolutely nothing to do with the race problem. Mm -hmm. and every, you know, it was like 25 of them. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I confronted her about that. I confronted her about that kind of limited uh, um, scope uh, or limited idea of what it was that we were capable of um, as a group of writers and uh, you know and even down to today um, there's this um, narrow vision of and I think this goes back to one of the points that you just asked in your question um, this narrow vision of what black drama should be mm -hmm. you know um, and you know so where does a Jeremy O'Harris fit in that? And where does um, uh, uh, Tavin McRaney mm -hmm. fit in that? Where, where does, um, uh, you know, Katori Hall or uh, Lydia Diamond, where mm -hmm. do they fit in these, in these uh, very narrow ideological spaces that people want to uh, place Black theater in? So, yeah. Do you... Um, mm -hmm. uh, feel like can a, can a black playwright in this country do you feel like they will eventually ever be able to just be known as a playwright or that 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 black stories can be known in theater just as american stories is this a place that you feel theater and for that matter opera is going to or do you feel like we have a lot more work to do to get to a place where that's so um in the current space no mm -hmm. in the uh, post-pandemic space possibly Okay. Um, you know, and it, this goes all the way back to the conversation we were having before before we started. Right. I think um, I think you know as we move forward, um, deeper you know deeper into this century, the racial demographics and the population demographics in this country are shifting, uh -huh. and they're shifting into a space where no one racial group. 
um, is the majority. Um, I'm I, at, at, at uh, New York University now in, in dramatic writing for the last two years, I have been teaching students who are on the undergraduate level who have been born since the year 2000, either 2000 or just after. They have no recollection whatsoever of the 20th century. Post 9-11 children. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, the, the 20th wow. century to them it, it means the same thing that for my generation, the 20s, the 1920s, <laughs> you know, right. was before, you know, it was before we came along. So it's, it's newsreels, it's stuff, it's information that's in books, yeah. it's, uh, stories that our parents were telling us and and for them it's the same thing with the 20th century this century the 21st century belongs to them yeah and for most of them they're going to enter their 30s just 10 years from now and usually for every generation when you're in your 30s that's when you start taking things over right so you know what does this generate what is this generation seeing for a huge chunk of their very young lives, still very young lives, there was a black president. True, yes. <laughs> you know, um, and for another chunk of their lives, there's the there's the real possibility that uh, there may be a black vice president. There is the probability that there will be a woman president. Um, so, Going into a space like that, where the where there are there are these new levels of expectation, what else begins to change? Right. You know, you know, especially in the college, you know, and you know, on the college level, they're meeting people from all walks of life. All of these demographics are now starting to move into the world of employment. You know, they're getting jobs. They're teaching. They're they're running businesses. They're uh, they're doing all kinds of things. And when you have that kind of change going on throughout the population itself, points of view start to, uh, you know, start to switch. Hmm. Points of view become changed. And these new points of view suddenly become the establishment itself. Okay. In a context like that, how we interpret ourselves, who is making the interpretations, who is validating those interpretations, all of that changes. It changes from one particular point of view that was predominant back then mm -hmm. to a whole new point of view that I think becomes part of whatever this new post-pandemic conversation is supposed to be. Well, and it's no and it's a massively changing conversation just even as we speak right now, so which is, is yes. good. Yeah. Yes. You know, um, yeah, and, and maybe it's maybe indeed it's the optimist in me. You know, the the, the hopeless optimist <laughs> in me. But at at a certain point, I had to stop despairing about this pan this pandemic. Uh huh. Um, and I had to, and I and I began to start thinking about why has it happened? How can it? You know. Uh, and what happens to the people who come out the other end? They're not going to want to go back to the world that they lived lived in before. They're, you know, they're going to be angry. They're going mm -hmm. to be, um, in some cases, in other cases, they're going to be um, disoriented. Mm -hmm. uh, in other cases, they're going to be apprehensive. You know, but then people are going to start talking to each other. You're going to say, "Oh my God!" You know, "Oh, look at all, look at all the work we got to do," and people are going to start talking about how they're going to rebuild, and the conversations that come out of that are going to be about, "Well, here we are. How do we? You know, okay, let's. You know, it's it's already started. You know." Um, the pandemic caused all of us to be in the same place at the same time when George Floyd was killed. Yes. And we all saw it. Yes. It wasn't like, well, I was at work. I didn't see that news broadcast about Eric Gardner. Oh, uh, I, oh yeah, I heard about Sandra Bland, but well, you know, I was, 
I was I was doing something else at the time, and well, I mean, well, that's all the way down in Texas, and I'm all the way up here in Maine. I mean, yeah, you know, except now we were all in front of our televisions when it happened. Do you think and that's all... somehow a silver lining inside of the the? I mean, not a silver lining. That's a weird way to put it, I guess. But just this. Now, not, but I know what you mean. I think I think anyone listening gets an idea of what what you're saying. It's mm. because we were there and we saw it and there was no there was no getting away from it and mm -hmm. suddenly when that police officer looked into the camera mm -hmm. while he was killing that man and he was looking at us and he was saying see this i can do this anytime i want and i can get away with it right and the outrageousness of that and people suddenly realized also, he's acting in my name. Right. He's saying this is okay because people like me have never bothered him about it before. What does that say about me? No, that is not who I am. And suddenly, it's not just Black people in the street saying Black Lives Matter. It's people from across the racial spectrum in this right. country and across an age cohort in this country that is not like any other age cohort that came before it. Right. You know? So yeah, things are going to be different and maybe the pandemic caused it, but uh, in part, but rather than being defeated by it, you've got people who are determined to make something positive come out of all of this tomorrow. And it's going to happen on a social level, a political level, and it's happening on an artistic level as well. Do you, I, you know, I, I, I'm reading your memoir, you, you, you paint such a terrific picture of, of Newark, Harlem, D.C. in the 60s and 70s. And, and, yes. and I think there's so much at that time, so much activism also happening. And do you, do you, does it feel does the, the does what's happening right now? Do you do, does it feel familiar? Does it feel anything like what you were what was happening at that point of time as well? Do you... Believe me, every old revolutionary <laughs> over the age of sixty five <laughs> is grinning from the ear to ear. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> you know, you know, thank you. Thank. You. <laughs> The kids are all right. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, this all looks very familiar. Um, our, you know, um, I think our role basically is to stay the hell out of your way. Uh-huh. Um, if there's some advice from us that you guys need, we should be here and we should be willing to give it. Uh-huh. But trying to get back out there and get on the stage and do things the way we did it back then. You don't need that. Um, every, every revolution, uh, certainly um, every social revolution in America has its own characteristics. And the people who drive that revolution are always the young. Yes. And it's, this is your turn guys. Uh, sorry. <laughs> you got to carry this one, <laughs> you know. Um, but I mean, you know, basically that's what we did back, you know, back then. Uh -huh. You know, um, the civil rights movement certainly had an older generation that um, um, that had been out there waging the good fight for years yes. uh, before any of us came along. Um, and the same thing was true of the anti-war movement. Um, there were people who were banned the bomb in the 50s, who were um, leading the charge against uh, fascism in the 30s and yeah. everything. And they were still out there in the 60s. But basically, whether it was civil rights or whether it was anti-war, um, it was uh, it was kids. Right. You know, it was, uh, you, you know, young people. Um, you know, Martin Luther King was, you know, uh, was in his 20s and 30s when he was leading uh uh, the marches. Yeah, that's and right. We people, forget that, don't we? We we see yeah. him as 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 somebody that I was mean, older, but he was not. He wasn't. He was thirty nine years old when he was assassinated. Jeez. You know, um, and 
you know, uh, Huey Newton was in his 20s and 30s. Right. Uh, Elrich Cleaver was uh, a similar age. So, uh, you know, that was then. We were, you know, and we were out in the front of that, you know, then. Um, we made our mistakes. So read the history books and figure out what we did wrong. And don't, <laughs> them, you know, right. Um, uh, our job now is, you know, like I said, you know, is basically to be there. Um, so if there's some information that you need from us, you know, give it and, you know, um, to support you in any way that we can, but the decisions that are going to be made um, ultimately about where things head rests with you because the rest of this century belongs to you. That's right. That's wonderful. You, yeah. um, you're still, you're still writing. You're still, uh, you're yeah. still, um, in 2015, you had a play premiered. It was your first full length play in many years, Autumn at the Crossroads Autumn. Theater. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Do you what uh, was that the last full length play that that uh, that you wrote? Are you writing something right now? Um, Autumn was the last full length play. I've written a couple of uh, short plays uh, since then, uh -huh. um, um, and then of course the operas, right. uh, the opera librettos, libretti, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, uh, I am working. Uh, or trying to formulate this uh, uh, new full-length play. Um, uh, it's more of a historical drama. Uh -huh. um, but I, but it's an interesting thing, Katura. I have not settled on its form, and I think that's that's why I haven't gotten more deeply into it. I've outlined it from the beginning, and I know exactly what how I want the story to unfold across the the period, the time period. It's a play that starts um, um, in uh, 1863 with um, uh, the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation mm -hmm. and ends um, uh, about 20 years later. Okay. Uh, I know that. But I think where I'm falling down is I keep imagining this play as being some kind of linear unfolding of events. Uh, it has to be, but I think where it, where it really needs to go is abstract, mm. impressionistic, impressionistic, and it also needs to be uh, nonlinear, you know, and I just haven't figured that part out yet, what, how that looks, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of how the story, uh, you know, would, would, uh, uh, would unfold. But um, I think if I move in that kind of arena, I can, I, I have a lot more freedom um, uh, to uh, move about and to tell the story the way that I want. Right. It's not a linear story and it's not a realistic story. It's, it's, it's not, it, it's, um, I started out thinking of it as some kind of big epic drama, but no, maybe it's something else. And I just got to figure out that something else is feels like your opera work might might be influencing your your playwriting work as well they everything sort of connects. yeah you know now now well it's such it's such a you know a writing a libretto and and working in opera and, and you know it's such a um a fascinating form it i've you know for any writer um uh something that presents a new challenge and everything it's always extremely stimulating <laughs> you know writing librettos for operas offers the same kind of magic that came with writing screenplays and teleplays uh-huh it because you're moving into an arena where the visual is as powerful as the spoken word uh -huh. or in this case the, the um the musical word um, you're moving into um, um, an arena where space is used in a different kind of way, the same way space is used in a different kind of way in film. Um, uh, you're moving into an arena where you can use light and sound to create um, uh, its own kind of magic. Uh -huh. um, and it, 
similarly to the ways to, to some of the ways that uh, uh, film editing allows you to move uh, from locale to locale and from interior action to exterior action um, uh, um, on screen. So yeah, I found something completely new. I found a, a, a whole new arena that allows me to continue to use my imagination uh, the same way that um, uh, film and television well, did. Here's to so, new experiences throughout your entire life. Yeah, that's absolutely, terrific. Absolutely. I want to go out like Picasso. They say he was on his way to the, he was on his way to the studio when he croaked. <laughs> Perfect. That's right. I've always said I want to. I, I I just want to go out with a god mic in my hand in a theater. That's what I want to do. Yeah, so. that's it. That's it. <laughs> You know, um, you know, you want your, you, you know, it's sort of like you, you want your last, your very last thought to be, I've got it. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And that's it. Yes. Richard that's Wesley, I, I just, I thank you so much for coming on to talk. To, I, I, I loved your book. I've loved this conversation. I, I am deeply appreciative. So I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Richard for such a great chat. I urge everyone to read his book, It's Always Loud in the Balcony. It's a fascinating look at the lifelong creative process of a dedicated artist. Next week, I'll share an interview with John de los Santos, a director who started writing libretti a few years ago and, let's all cross fingers, will premiere his and Clint Borzoni's opera The Copper Queen in Arizona in the fall. I hope you'll join us. This podcast was recorded deep inside my office closet in Knoxville, Tennessee. Special thanks to Early Doucet for the colorful logo, Eileen Downey for the theme music, and my husband for keeping the dog quiet. Thanks for listening, and until the next time, stay safe, wear your mask, and keep telling stories. Music